support Black Clock Audio Tales by going to the Patreon link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. This month, the month of May, we are doing uh, the space operas Skylark of Space and Skylark 3 by E.E. Smith. Thank you again for listening. And for Radio Free Oleander, we'll be talking about Star Wars, or the Star Wars trilogy, or the Star Wars series, or Star Wars as a phenomena this May. Check out our show notes for where to find us, where to subscribe, where to find out, where to find us on social media, where to suggest stuff, where to say, hey, I was listening to Dracula, and there's a page missing that happened, and I fixed it. Black Clock Audio Tales, the month of May. Recording by Richard Kilmer. The Invasion The pulsating air and the chattering sounders were giving the same dire warning, the alarm extraordinary of invasion, of imminent and catastrophic danger from the air. Don't try to reach the palace. Everyone on the ground will have time to hide in the deep, arnak-protected pits beneath the buildings, and you would be killed by the invaders long before you could reach the palace. If we can repel the enemy and keep them from landing, the women will be perfectly safe, even though the whole city is destroyed. If they effect a landing, we are lost. They will not land then, Satan answered grimly, as he sprang into the Skylark and took his place at the boards. As Crane took out his wireless, Seaton cautioned him. Send in English, and tell the girls not to answer, as these devils can locate the calls within a foot and will be able to attack the right spot. Just tell them we're safe in the Skylark. Tell them to sit tight while we wipe out this gang that is coming, and that we'll call them once in a while, when we have time during the battle. Before Crane had finished sending the message, the crescendo whine of enormous propellers was heard. Simultaneously, there was a deafening concussion, and one entire wing of the palace disappeared in a cloud of dust, in the midst of which could be discerned a few flying fragments. The air was filled with Mardolian warships. They were huge vessels, each mounting hundreds of guns, and the rain of high-explosive shells was rapidly reducing the great city to a widespread heap of debris. Seton's hand was upon the lever, which would hurl the Skylark upward into the fray. Crane and Duquesne, each hard of eye and grim of jaw, were stationed at their machine guns. "'Something's up!' exclaimed Seton. "'Look at the Condal!' Something had happened indeed. Dunark sat at the board, his hand upon the power lever, and each of his crew was in place, grasping his weapon, but every man was writhing in agony, unable to control his movements. As they stared, momentarily spellbound, the entire crew ceased their agonizing struggles and hung apparently lifeless from their supports. "'They've got to him some way. Let's go,' yelled Seaton. As his hand tightened upon the lever, a succession of shells burst upon the dock, wrecking it completely. All three men fancied 
that the world had come to an end as the stream of high explosive was directed against their vessel. But the four-foot shell of Arnak was impregnable, and Seaton shot the Skylark upward into the midst of the enemy fleet. The two gunners fired as fast as they could sight their weapons, and with each shot one of the great warships was blown into fragments. The Mardolians then concentrated the fire of their entire fleet upon their tiny opponent. From every point of the compass, from above and below, the enemy gunners directed streams of shells against the dodging vessel. The noise was more than deafening. It was one continuous, shattering explosion, and the Earthmen were surrounded by such a blaze of fire from the exploding shells that they could not see the enemy vessels. Seaton sought to dodge the shells by a long dive toward one side, only to find that dozens of new opponents had been launched against them. The deadly airplane torpedoes of Ostnome. Steered by wireless and carrying no crews, they were simply winged bombs carrying thousands of pounds of terrific electrical explosive, enough to kill the men inside the vessel by concussion of the explosion, even should the Arnak armor be strong enough to withstand the blow. Though much faster than the Osnomian vessels, they were slow beside the Skylark, and Seaton could have dodged a few of them with ease. As he dodged, however, they followed relentlessly, and in spite of those which were blown up by the gunners, their number constantly increased until Seaton thought of the repellers. "'Nobody home is right,' he exclaimed, as he threw on the power, actuating the copper bands which encircled the hull in all directions. Instantly the torpedoes were hurled backward, exploding as the force struck them, and even the shells were ineffective, exploding harmlessly as they encountered the zone of force. The noise of the awful detonations lessened markedly. "'Why the silence, I wonder,' asked Seaton, while the futile shells from the enemy continued to waste their force some hundreds of feet distant from their goal, and while Crane and Duquesne were methodically destroying the huge vessels as fast as they could aim and fire. At every report, one of the monster warships disappeared, its shattered fragments and the bodies of its crew hurtling to the ground. His voice could not be heard in even the lessened tumult, but he continued. It must be that our repellers have set up a partial vacuum by repelling even the air. Suddenly the shelling ceased, and the Skylark was enveloped by a blinding glare from hundreds of great reflectors, an intense, searching, bluish-violet light that burned the flesh and seared through eyelids and eyeballs into the very brain. Ultraviolet yelled Seaton at the first glimpse of the light as he threw on the power. Shut your eyes, turn your heads down. Out in space, far beyond the reach of the deadly rays, the men held a short conference, then donned heavy leather and canvas suits, which they smeared liberally with thick red paint, and replaced the plain glasses of their helmets with heavy lenses of deep ruby glass. This'll stop any ultraviolet ray ever produced, exalted Seaton, as he again threw the vessel into the Mardolian fleet. A score of great vessels met their fate before the Skylark was located, 
and although the terrible rays were again focused upon the intruder in all their intensity, the carnage continued. In a few moments, however, the men heard, or rather felt, a low, intense vibration, like a silent wave of sound, a vibration which smote upon the eardrums as no possible sound could smite, a vibration which racked the joints and tortured the nerves as though the whole body were disintegrating. So sudden and terrible was the effect that Seaton uttered an involuntary yelp of surprise and pain as he once more fled into the safety of space. "'What the devil was that?' demanded Duquesne. "'Was it infrasound? I didn't suppose such waves could be produced.' "'Infrasound is right. They produce almost anything here,' replied Seaton, and Crane added. "'Well, about three fur suits apiece.' with cotton in our ears, ought to kill any wave propagated through air. The fursuits were donned forthwith, Seaton whispering in Crane's ear, I found out something else, too. The repellers repel even the air. I'm going to shoot enough juice through them to set up a perfect vacuum outside. That'll kill those air waves. Scarcely were they back within the range of the fleet when Duquesne, reaching for his gun to fire the first shot, leaped backwards with a yell. Beat it! Once more at a safe distance, Duquesne explained. It's lucky I'm so used to handling hot stuff that, from force of habit, I never make close contact with anything at the first touch. That gun carried thousands of volts with a lot of amperage behind them, and if I had had a good hold on it, I couldn't have let go. We'll block that game quickly enough, though. Thick, dry gloves covered with rubber are all that is necessary. It's a good thing for all of us that you have those fancy condensite handles on your levers, Seaton. That was how they got Dunark, undoubtedly, said Crane, as he sent a brief message to the girls, assuring them that all was well, as he had been doing at every respite. But why were we not overcome at the same time? They must have had the current tuned to iridium, and had to experiment until they found the right wave for steel, Seaton explained. I should think our bar would have exploded with all that current. They must have hit the copper range, too. Seaton frowned and thought before he answered. Maybe because it's induced current, and not a steady battery impulse. Anyway, it didn't. Let's go. Just a minute, put in Crane. What are they going to do next, Dick? Search me. I'm not used to my new Osnomian mine yet. I recognize things all right after they happen, but I can't seem to figure ahead. It's like a dimly remembered something that flashes up as soon as mentioned. I get too many and too new ideas at once. I know, though, that the Osnomians have defenses against all these things except this last stunt of the charged guns. That must be the new one that Mardinale stole from Condal. The defenses are, however, purely Osnomian in character and material. As we haven't got the stuff to set them up as the Osnomians do, we'll have to do it our own way. We may be able to dope out the next one, though. Let's see what they have given us so far. We've got to hand it to him, responded Duquesne admiringly. They've given us the whole range of wavelengths one at a time. 
They've given us light, both ultraviolet and visible. Sound, infrasound, and electricity. I don't know what's left, unless they give us a new kind of X-rays, or Hertzian, or infrared heat waves, or... That's it, heat, exclaimed Seaton. They produce heat by means of powerful wave generators, and by setting up heavy induced currents in the armor, they can melt arnak that way. Do you suppose we can handle the heat with our refrigerators? asked Crane. Probably. We have a lot of power, and the new arnak cylinders of our compressors will stand anything. The only trouble will be in cooling the condensers. We'll run as long as we have any water in our tanks, then go dive into the ocean to cool off. We'll try it a whirl, anyway. Soon the Skylark again was dealing out death and destruction in the thick of the enemy vessels, who again turned from the devastation of the helpless city to destroy this troublesome antagonist. But in spite of the utmost efforts of light waves, sound waves, and high-tension electricity, the space car continued to take its terrible toll. As Seaton had foretold, the armor of the Skylark began to grow hot, and he turned on the full power of the refrigerating system. In spite of the cooling apparatus, however, the outer walls finally began to glow redly, and although the interior was comfortably cool, the ends of the rifle barrels, which were set flush with the surface of the revolving Arnock globes which held them, softened, rendering the guns useless. The copper repellers melted and dripped off in flaming balls of molten metal, so that shells once more began to crash against the armor. Duquesne, with no thought of quitting apparent in his voice or manner, said calmly, Well, it looks as though they had us stopped for a few minutes. Let's go back into space and dope out something else. Seaton, thinking intensely, saw a vast fleet of enemy reinforcements approaching, and at the same time received the wireless call directed to Dunark. It was from the Grand Fleet of Condal, hastening from the bordering ocean to the defense of the city. Using Dunark's private code, Seaton told the Carbix, who was in charge of the fleet, that the enemy had a new invention which would wipe them out utterly without a chance to fight, and that he and his vessel were in control of the situation, and ordered him to see that no Condalian ship came within battle range of a Mardalayan. He then turned to Crane and Duquesne, his face grim and his fighting jaw set. I've got it doped right now. Give the Lark speed enough, and she's some bullet herself. We've got four feet of Arnak. They've got only an inch, and Arnak doesn't even begin to soften until far above a blinding white temperature. Strap yourselves in solid. It's going to be a rough party from now on. They buckled their belts firmly, and Seaton, holding the bar toward their nearest antagonist, applied twenty notches of power. The Skylark darted forward and crashed completely through the great airship. Torn wide open by the forty-foot projectile, its engines wrecked and its helicopter screws and propellers completely disabled, the helpless hulk plunged through two miles of empty air, a mass of wreckage. Darting hither and thither, the space car tore through vessel after vessel of the Mardolian fleet. She was an embodied thunderbolt, 
a huge, irresistible, indestructible projectile, directed by a keen brain inside it, the brain of Richard Seaton, roused to his highest fighting pitch and fighting for everything that man holds dear. Tortured by the terrible silent waves, which now that the protecting vacuum had been destroyed were only partially stopped by the fur suits, shaken and battered by the terrific impacts and the even greater shocks occurring every second as the direction of the vessel was changed, made sick and dizzy by the nauseating swings and lurches as the Skylark spun about the central chamber, Seaton's wonderful physique and his nerves of steel stood him in good stead in this, the supreme battle of his life, as with teeth tight-locked and eyes gray and hard as the fracture of high-carbon steel, he urged the Skylark on to greater and greater efforts. Though it was impossible for the eye to follow the flight of the space car, the mechanical sighting devices of the Mardolian vessels kept her in as perfect focus as though she were stationary, and the great generators continued to hurl into her the full power of their death-dealing waves. The enemy guns were still spitting forth their streams of high-explosive shells, but unlike the waves, the shells moved so slowly compared to their target that only a few found their mark, and many of the vessels fell to the ground, riddled by the shells of their sister ships. With anxious eyes, Seaton watched the hull of his animated cannonball change in color. From dull red, it became cherry, and as the cherry red gave place to bright red heat, Seaton threw even more power into the bar, as he muttered through his set teeth. Well, Seaton, old top, you've got to cut out this loafing on the job and get busy. In spite of his utmost exertions and in spite of the powerful ammonia plant now exerting its full capacity, but sadly handicapped by the fact that its cooling water was now boiling, Seaton saw the arnak shell continue to heat. The bright red was succeeded by orange, which slowly changed, first to yellow, then to light yellow, and finally to a dazzling white, through which, with the aid of his heavy red lenses, he could still see the enemy ships. After a time he noted that the color had gone down to yellow, and he thrilled with exultation, knowing that he had so reduced the number of the enemy fleet that their wave generators could no longer overcome his refrigerators. After a few minutes more of the awful carnage, there remained only a small fraction of the proud fleet which, thousands strong, had invaded Condal, a remnant that sought safety in flight. But even in flight they still fought with all their weapons, and the streams of bombs dropped from their keel batteries upon the country beneath marked the path of their retreat with a wide swath of destruction. Half inclined to let the few remaining vessels escape, Seaton's mind changed instantly as he saw the bombs spreading devastation upon the countryside and not until the last of the Mardolian vessels had been destroyed did he drop the Skylark into the area of ruins which had once been the palace grounds, beside the Condal, which was still lying as it had fallen. After several attempts to steady their whirling senses, the three men finally were able to walk, and opening a door, they leaped out through the opening in the still-glowing wall. Seaton's first act was to wireless the news to Dorothy, who replied that they were coming as fast as they could. 
The men then removed their helmets, revealing faces pale and drawn, and turned to the helpless space car. There's no way of getting into this thing from the outside, Seaton began, when he saw that the Kofedix and his party were beginning to revive. Soon Dunark opened the door and stumbled out. I have to thank you for more than my life this time, he said, his voice shaken by uncontrollable emotion as he grasped the hands of all three men. Though unable to move, I was conscious and saw all that happened. You kept them so busy that they didn't have a chance to give us enough to kill us outright. You saved the lives of millions of our nation and have saved Condal itself from annihilation. Oh, it's not that bad, answered Seaton uncomfortably. Both nations have been invaded before. Yes, once when we developed the ultraviolet ray, once when Mardanel perfected the machine for producing the silent sound wave, and again when we harnessed the heat wave. But this would have been the most complete disaster in history. The other inventions were not so deadly as was this one, and there were terrible battles from which the victors emerged so crippled that they could not completely exterminate the vanquished, who were able to re-establish themselves in the course of time. If it had not been for you, this would have been the end, as not a Condolinian soldier could move. Any person touching Iridium was helpless and would have been killed. He ceased speaking and saluted as the Carfedix and his party rounded a heap of boulders. Dorothy and Margaret screamed in unison as they saw the haggard faces of their husbands and saw their suits dripping with a thick substance which they knew to be red in spite of its purplish-black color. Seaton dodged nimbly as Dorothy sought to take him in her arms and tore off his suit. Nothing but red paint to stop their light rays, he reassured her, as he lifted her clear off the ground in a soul-satisfying embrace. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw the Condoleans staring in open-mouthed amazement at the Skylark. Wheeling swiftly, he laughed as he saw a gigantic ball of frost and snow. Again donning his first suit, he shut off the refrigerators and returned to his party, where the Carfedix gave him thanks in measured terms. As he fell silent, Dunark added, Thanks to you, the Mardolian forces, instead of wiping us out, are themselves destroyed, while only a handful of our vessels have been lost. Since the Grand Fleet could not arrive until the battle was over, and since the vessels that would have thrown themselves away were saved by your orders, which I heard, thanks to you, we are not even crippled. Though our capital is destroyed and the lives of some unfortunates who could not reach the pits in time have probably been lost. Thanks to you, he continued in a ringing voice, and to the salt and the new source of power you have given us, Mardanael shall now be destroyed utterly. After sending out ships to relieve the suffering of the few wounded and the many homeless, Dunark summoned a corps of mechanics who banded on new repellers and repaired the fused barrels of the machine guns, all that was necessary to restore the Skylark to perfect condition. Facing the party from Earth, the Carfedix stood in the ruins of his magnificent palace. Back of him were the nobles of Condal, and still further back in order of rank stood a multitude of people. 
Is it permitted, O noble Carfado, that I reward your captive for his share in the victory, he asked. It is, acquiesced Seton and Crane, and Roban stepped up to Duquesne and placed in his hand a weighty leather bag. He then fastened about his left wrist the order of Condal, the highest order of the nation. He then clasped about Crane's wrist a heavily jeweled, peculiarly ornamented disc, wrought of deep ruby-red metal, supported by a heavy bracelet of the same material, the most precious metal of Osnome. At sight of the disc, the nobles saluted, and Seaton barely concealed a start of surprise, for it bore the royal emblem, and delegated to its bearer power second only to that of the Carfedex himself. I bestow upon you this symbol, Carfedex Crane, in recognition of what you have done this day for Condal. Wherever you may be upon Condolian Osnome, which from this day henceforth shall be all Osnome, you have power as my personal representative, as my eldest son. He drew forth a second bracelet, similar to the first, except that it bore seven discs, each differently designed, which he snapped upon Seton's wrist as the nobles knelt and the people back of them threw themselves upon their faces. No language spoken by man possesses words sufficiently weighty to express our indebtedness to you, Carfedix Seton, our guest and our savior. The first cause has willed that you should be the instrument through which Condal is this day made supreme upon Osnome. In small and partial recognition of that instrumentality, I bestow upon you these symbols, which proclaim you our overlord, the ultimate authority of Osnome. While this is not the way in which I had thought to bid you farewell, the obligations which you have heaped upon us render all smaller things insignificant. When you return, as I hope and trust you soon will, the city shall be built anew, and we can welcome you as befits your station. Lifting both arms above his head, he continued, May the great first cause smile upon you in all your endeavors until you solve the mystery. May your descendants soon reach the ultimate goal. Goodbye. Seaton uttered a few heartfelt words in response, and the party stepped backward toward the Skylark. As they reached the vessel, the standing Carfedix and the ranks of kneeling nobles snapped into the double salute, truly a rare demonstration in Condal. "'What do we do now?' whispered Seaton. "'Bow, of course,' answered Dorothy. They bowed deeply and slowly and entered their vessel. As the Skylark shot into the air with the greatest acceleration that would permit its passengers to move about, the grand fleet of Condolian warship fired a deafening salute. It had been planned before the start that each person was to work sixteen hours out of the twenty-four. Seaton was to drive the vessel during the first two eight-hour periods of each day. Crane was to observe the stars during the second and drive during the third. Duquesne was to act as observer during the first and third periods. Margaret volunteered to assist the observer in taking his notes during her waking hours, and Dorothy appointed herself cook and household manager. 
As soon as the Skylark had left Osnome, Crane told Duquesne that he and his wife would work in the observation room until four o'clock in the afternoon, at which time the prearranged system of relief would begin, and Duquesne retired to his room. Crane and Margaret made their way to the darkened room, which housed the instruments and seated themselves, watching intently, making no effort to conceal their emotion, as first the persons beneath them, then the giant war vessels, and finally the ruined city itself were lost to view. Ostome slowly assumed the proportions of a large moon, grew smaller, and as it disappeared, Crane began to take notes. For a few hours, the seventeen suns of this strange solar system shone upon the flying space car, after which they assumed the aspect of a widely separated cluster of enormous stars, slowly growing smaller and smaller and shrinking closer and closer together. At four o'clock in the afternoon, Washington time, Duquesne relieved Crane, who made his way to the engine room. It's time to change shifts, Dick. You have not had your sixteen hours, but everything will be regular from now on. You too had better get some rest. All right, replied Seaton, as he relinquished the controls to Crane, and after bidding the new helmsman good night, he and Dorothy went below to their cabin. Standing at the window, with their arms around each other, they stared down with misty eyes at the very faint green star, which was rapidly decreasing in brilliance as the Skylark increased its already inconceivable velocity. Finally, as it disappeared altogether, Seaton turned to his wife and tenderly, lovingly, took her in his arms. "'Little girl, sweetheart,' he whispered, and paused, overcome by the intensity of his feelings. "'I know, husband mine,' she answered, while tears dimmed her glorious eyes. "'It is too deep. With nothing but words,' We can't say a single thing. End of chapter 18 The Return to Earth Duquesne's first act upon gaining the privacy of his own cabin was to open the leather bag presented to him by the Carfidix. He expected to find it filled with rare metals, with perhaps some jewels, instead of which the only metal present was a heavily insulated tube containing a full pound of metallic radium. The least valuable items in the bag were scores of diamonds, rubies, and emeralds of enormous size and of flawless perfection. Merely ornamental glass upon Osnome, Dunark knew that they were priceless on earth and had acted accordingly. To this great wealth of known gems, he had added a rich and varied assortment of the rare and strange jewels peculiar to his own world, the Phaedon alone being omitted from the collection. Duquesne's habitual calmness of mind almost deserted him as he classified the contents of the bag. The radium alone was worth millions of dollars, and the scientist in him exalted that at last his brother scientists should have ample supplies of that priceless metal with which to work, even while he was rejoicing in the price he would exact for it. He took out the familiar jewels, estimating their value as he counted them, a staggering total. The bag was still half full of the strange gems 
some of them glowing like miniature lamps in the dark depths, and he made no effort to appraise them. He knew that once any competent jeweler had compared their cold, hard, scintillating beauty with that of any earthly gems, he could demand his own price. At last, he breathed to himself, I will be what I have always longed to be, a money power. Now I can cut loose from that gang of crooks and go my own way. He replaced the gems and the tube of radium in the bag, which he stowed away in one of his capacious pockets, and made his way to the galley. The return voyage through space was uneventful, the Skylark constantly maintaining the same velocity with which she had started out. Several times as the days wore on, she came within the zone of attraction of various gigantic suns, but the pilot had learned his lesson. He kept a vigilant eye upon the bar, and at the first sign of a deviation from the perpendicular, he steered away, far from the source of that attraction. Not content with these precautions, the man at the board would, from time to time, shut off the power to make sure that the space car was not falling toward a body directly in its line of flight. When half the distance had been covered, the bar was reversed, the travelers holding an impromptu ceremony as the great vessel spun around its center through an angle of 180 degrees. A few days later, the observers began to recognize some of the fixed stars in familiar constellations and knew that the yellowish-white star directly in their line of flight was the sun of their own solar system. After a time, they saw that their course, instead of being directly toward the rapidly brightening star, was bearing upon a barely visible star, a little to one side of it. Pointing their most powerful telescope toward that point of light, Crane made out a planet, half of its disk shining brightly. The girls hastened to peer through the telescope, and they grew excited as they made out the familiar outlines of the continents and oceans upon the lighted portion of the disk. It was not long until these outlines were plainly visible to the unaided vision. The Earth appeared as a great, softly shining, greenish half-moon, with parts of its surface obscured by fleecy wisps of clouds, and with its two gleaming ice caps making of its poles two brilliant areas of white. The returning wanderers stared at their own world with their hearts in their throats as Crane, who was at the board, increased the retarding force sufficiently to assure himself that they would not be traveling too fast to land upon the earth. After Dorothy and Margaret had gone to prepare a meal, Duquesne turned to Seaton. "'Have you gentlemen decided what you intend to do with me?' "'No, we haven't discussed it yet. I can't make up my own mind what I want to do to you, except that I was sure would like to get you inside a square ring with four-ounce gloves on. You have been of too much real assistance on this trip for us to see you hanged as you deserve. On the other hand, you are altogether too much of a thoroughgoing scoundrel for us to let you go free. You see the fix we're in. What would you suggest? Nothing, replied Duquesne calmly. As I am in no danger whatever of hanging, nothing you can say on that score affects me in the least. As for freeing me, you may do as you please. 
It makes no difference to me, one way or the other. No jail can hold me for a day. I can say, however, that while I have made a fortune on this trip, so that I do not have to associate further with steel, unless it is in my interest to do so, I may nevertheless find it desirable at some future time to establish a monopoly of X. That would, of course, necessitate the death of yourself and Crane. In that event, or in case any other difference should arise between us, this whole affair will be as though it had never existed. It will have no weight either way, whether or not you try to hang me. Go as far as you like, Seaton answered cheerfully. If we're not a match for you and your gang, on foot or in the air, in body or in mind, we'll deserve whatever we get. We can outrun you, outjump you, throw you down or lick you. We can run faster, hit harder, dive deeper and come up drier than you can. We'll play any game you want to deal, whenever you want to deal it, for fun, money, chalk, or marbles. His brow darkened in anger as a thought struck him, and the steady gray eyes bored into the unflinching black ones as he continued, with no trace of his former levity in his voice. But listen to this. Anything goes as far as Martin and I personally are concerned. But I want you to know that I could be arrested for what I think of you as a man, and if any of your little schemes touch Dottie or Peggy in any way, shape, or form, I'll kill you as I would a snake, or rather, I'll take you apart as I would any other piece of scientific apparatus. That isn't a threat. It's a promise. Get me? Perfectly. Good night. For many hours the earth had been obscured by clouds, so that the pilot had only a general idea of what part of the world was beneath them. But as they dropped rapidly downward into the twilight zone, the clouds parted and they saw that they were directly over the Panama Canal. Seaton allowed the Skylark to fall to within ten miles of the ground, when he stopped so that Martin could get his bearings and calculate the course to Washington, which would be in total darkness before their arrival. Duquesne had retired cold and recitant as usual. Glancing quickly about his cabin to make sure that he had overlooked nothing he could take with him, he opened a locker, exposing to view four suits which he had made in his spare time, each adapted to a particular method of escape from the Skylark. The one he selected was of heavy canvas braced with steel netting, equipped with helmet and air tanks, and attached to a strong, heavy parachute. He put it on, tested all its parts, and made his way unobserved to one of the doors in the lower part of the vessel. Thus, when the chance to escape came, he was ready for it. As the Skylark paused over the isthmus, his lips parted in a sardonic smile. He opened the door and stepped out into the air, closing the door behind him as he fell. The neutral color of his parachute was lost in the gathering twilight a few seconds after he left the vessel. The course laid, Seaton turned almost due north, and the Skylark tore through the air. After a short time, when half the ground had been covered, Seaton spoke suddenly. Forgot about Duquesne, Mart. We'd better iron him, hadn't we? Then we'll decide whether we want to keep him or turn him loose. I will go fetch him, replied Crane. 
and turned to the stairs. He returned shortly with the news of the flight of the captive. Hmm, he must have made himself a parachute. I didn't think even he would tackle a 60,000-foot drop. I'll tell the world that he sure has established a record. I can't say I'm sorry that he got away, though. We can get him any time we want him anyway, as that little object compass in my drawer is still looking right at him, said Seaton. I think he earned his liberty, declared Dorothy stoutly, and Margaret added, He deserves to be shot, but I'm glad he's gone. He gives me the shivers. At the end of the calculated time, they saw the lights of a large city beneath them, and Crane's fingers clenched upon Seaton's arm as he pointed downward. There were the landing lights of Crane Field, seven peculiarly arranged searchlights throwing their mighty beams upward into the night. Nine weeks, Dick, he said unsteadily, and Shiro would have kept them burning nine years if necessary. The Skylark dropped easily to the ground in front of the testing shed, and the wanderers leaped out to be greeted by the half-hysterical Jap. Shiro's ready vocabulary of peculiar but sonorous words failed him completely, and he bent himself double in a bow, his yellow face wreathed in the widest possible smile. Crane, one arm around his wife, seized Shiro's hand and wrung it in silence. Seaton swept Dorothy off her feet, pressing her slender form against his powerful body. Her arms tightened about his neck as they kissed each other fervently, and he whispered into her ear, "'Sweetheart, wife, isn't it great to be back on our good old earth again?' End of chapter 19 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas End of the Skylark of Space by E. E. Doc Smith